Clang, clang, clang went the trolley. Ding, ding, ding went the bell. It's Liza with a Z, not Lisa with an S, cause Lisa with an S goes snuds. Let me hear you say, hey, Miss Carter. Don't cry for me, Argentina. There can be a hundred people in the room. Liza! I'm Robbie Latua. And I'm Tequila Mockingbird. Welcome to Divas on Divas. The podcast where we make our diva obsession your problem. Hey, you know the podcast is going to be really good when I look over to you during the intro and you're having a little power nap. <laughs> Just a little micro sleep, you know. Recharge the batteries where you can over this festive season. <laughs> right at the top of the show, I want to give a little shout out to friend of the show. Well, new found friend of the show for sure. Dylan Mason, because we're sitting here in our beautiful own Divas on Divas branded T-shirts. How cute are they? Beautiful, beautiful Christmas presents from Dylan. So stunning. It's got our photos on the back. It's got our Divas on Divas logo on the breast. Stunning. I Love can't it. wait to wear my own face to Molly's circuit all over Melbourne, in fact. <laughs> well, if Lisa Mann can do it, I don't see why you can't. <laughs> can you believe it? Episode number 10, Tequila. We've arrived at the final episode of the podcast. I think just... Past a year to the date of the original conception of this podcast. Of course, after this episode, we are going to take a short little break, but we will be bringing a season two to you sometime next year. And we've got some really fabulous stuff coming up in the meantime between season one and season two. Little tidbits here and there to keep you entertained in the off season. But there's more reasons than just that to be excited, Tequila, because we always wanted to bookend this season. It was important to us that there was a bit of a story arc to the season. Well, more importantly, that the people who sort of birthed this experience for us were going to bookend the season. So, of course, episode one was Judy Garland, who I think will still remain one of the most iconic original divas in the sense of what we're doing here on Divas on Divas, one of the biggest gay icons I think that there ever was. And ever will be. So there's no better way than to finish the season with your personal favourite diva. My favourite diva of all time, the one, the only, Liza Minnelli. I know how much you love Liza. You do a fantastic Liza on the stage. Thank you. You told me to say that. Um, (laughs) No, thank you. I will pay you that money. (laughs) You do really embody Liza on the stage. I mean, she's such a drag classic, isn't she? Because there's so much there to work with. For me, she's just the embodiment of camp. Like, I think of camp and I think of eccentricity and she's the first person that comes to mind. She is just so over the top and she's always in, like, the designer, like, the Halston sequins and the red and and the black sequins and the jumpsuits and the like, it's always a show. Yeah. Whatever Liza does, it's a show. And, and I like it, to think that my life is the same. That's, it's not. But that's exactly what I love about her is that she is through and through. She's showbiz. And she embodies this glitz and glam and excitement of Hollywood and has that story that we're going to get into coming from Hollywood royalty and making it herself. Like, it's just, honestly, it's one of my favourite diva stories. And for me, this is the, the diva story starts for me in in my head starts with Judy and he's the flame is carried so beautifully by Liza. So let's crack into the fundamental facts and figures of one Miss Liza Minnelli. Where do I begin? Born Liza May Minnelli on March 12th 
1946 in Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, which makes her 74 years old. Her mother is, of course, the very famous diva herself, Judy Garland, and her father was old Hollywood director Vincent Minnelli. They sadly split up when she was just five years old, but she did remain close with both parents. She has a wonderful relationship with her parents. She's, of course, named after the Ira Gershwin song, Liza, All the Clouds Will Roll Away, which was a personal favourite of her mother's. Do you know Ira Gershwin was her godfather as well? Yeah. Yeah, cute. With such famous parents, it's no surprise that she first appeared on set at just three years of age alongside her mother in the movies in the good old summertime. Because they don't name movies like they used to, do they? No, no, they really don't. <laughs> Would you go to Gold Class to see In the Good Old Summertime? <laughs> Having seen In the Good Old Summertime? Yes, I would. Okay, well, fair enough. <laughs> She continued her interest in showbiz, moving to New York when she was just 15 years old to attend the High School of the Performing Arts. By 17, she was performing professionally in the off-Broadway musical Best Foot Forward, for which she won a Theatre World Award. So young. Say that fast three times. Theatre World Award. Theatre World World Award. Award. At 18, she performed in concert with Judy at the London Palladium, and by 19, she was performing her first role on Broadway in Flora and the Red Menace, which led to her very first Tony win and made her the youngest person to ever win a Tony for lead actress. Which is, of course, where her long professional working relationship with Candor and Ebb started, who were just trickled throughout all of her musical From performances the and stuff. start of her career, they really, really, really took her under their wing and were like, she's our muse, she's our girl. They're going to come up a bit, I think, this episode. Yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> It was also around this time that she turned to the cabaret scene as a singer and performer in nightclubs touring all over the USA. She's recorded 11 studio albums, 10 live albums and 17 compilation albums. She's also attributed to the release of 28 singles and she's contributed to 8 soundtrack albums as well. She starred in 23 films and 21 stage shows. Almost like for like, 23 and 21. Which you don't often see, but when I think of Liza, I think mainly of the stuff that she's done on stage or songs that have become big for from musicals and less so her movies, even though there are quite a few of those. Some of her most famous songs are Ring Them Bells, Maybe This Time, Cabaret, Liza with a Z, and of course, New York, New York. She's starred in such movies as Arthur, Lucky Lady, New York, New York, and of course, Cabaret. Oh, let's not forget Sex in the City 2. Oh, sorry. <laughs> My bad. The most famous of the Sex All in the, the City movies. All the single ladies. All the single ladies. Not afraid to make fun of herself, is she? No, not at all. (laughs) This is the irreverence of these divas that we've covered so far this season. Quite a lot of them are so irreverent and so happy to just poke fun at themselves. Which is probably why we've picked them, why Why we've been drawn to these particular divas. She was married in 1967 to the Australian actor and entertainer Peter Allen. They were married for seven years. In 1974, she married director and producer Jack Haley Jr. They were married for five years. Fun fact, Jack Haley Jr., his father, Jack Haley Sr., played the Tin Man opposite Judy in The Wizard of Oz. I know, what a small world, hey? Like, crazy. They must have grew up on the lot together. Yeah. And just eventually ended up getting married. But it only lasted five years. In 1979, she went on to marry sculptor Mark Giro, and they were married for 13 years. Yeah, I feel like this one was kind of the love of her life, because they they wanted to have kids. It's the one that she finally wanted to settle down with. Uh, She was pregnant, actually, when she married Mark, but unfortunately lost the child after just a few days after their wedding, which is really sad. And then had three miscarriages all up with him and it does make me wonder whether that had its toll on the relationship that, and that's yeah, why it that's, didn't really that work out. That's to why they yeah they didn't work out. And then most famously in 2002 she was married to the producer David Guest for one year. Is this is he just an awful person? Girl, we're going to get into that. <laughs> Bitch, don't get me started. I feel like you might be Don't get me started on that plastic face, man. I can't stand him. She's got the weirdest taste in men, man. Like, I mean, Peter Allen was a good looking man, but he was a homosexual. (laughs) Raise your hand if your husband's a homo. (laughs) 
she's won the important awards, and that's what really matters. She has an Academy Award. She won Best Actress in 1973 for Cabaret, which made her the only child of two Oscar winners to also win their own Oscar. Like, it must have been such a great moment for her because it's, it is this moment of standing on your own two feet. Like, not that she hadn't been doing that for so long, but yeah. separating yourself as a star from the stock and where you'd come from. Look at me now, Mama. I made it. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. And I, I really feel like that's how it would have felt. She had won an Emmy win for her special Liza with a Z. That was also that year in 1973. Big year for her. She's got four Tony Awards from five nominations. Stunning. Which is a great track record. And then she won the Grammys Legend Award in 1990 and the Grammys Hall of Fame in, uh, was inducted into the Grammys Hall of Fame in 2008, which makes her... One Our favourite. <laughs> and E got. She's got the E, G, the O and the T. And she had the E, the O and the T by the time she was 27 years old. That's pretty astounding that's, stuff. That's, yeah. She also has two Golden Globe wins. And, of course, Tequila, her Hollywood Walk of Fame star for a Work in theatre in 1991. Early. Sure. All right, let's crack into it. And isn't it ironic? Don't you think? Oh, the listeners won't know this, Tequila, but we've just had a pizza break and I'm feeling full. Well, you will after eating an entire pizza, a box of chicken wings and a whole garlic bread to yourself. Rude. I didn't, but I did somehow manage to wolf down four pieces of pizza and uh, two pieces of garlic bread in the time that you had one and one respectively. Yeah, I'm just not a pizza person. <laughs> I'm not a pizza person. It doesn't, it doesn't do it for me. It's all that doughy. Ugh, ugh, not for me. Anyway, the more I you say. know. <laughs> <laughs> so we mentioned earlier that she was in a little film called Cabaret. Yes. You might have heard of it. I might have done the title song a couple Look, of times. I've heard of it, twice. but what I can tell you is I haven't seen it. I cannot find this movie to watch anywhere. I can't get it on any streaming service. It doesn't anything. exist anywhere. I want to buy it. I can't buy it. It's on I've Amazon, got, but that's in America, not in not I've got here. two DVD copies of it at home. <laughs> so when I was messaging last night saying that I can't watch Cabaret, you didn't think to maybe bring one for me today? Well, no, because I was out. Busy, love. Busy, very busy. Busy, drag queen. <laughs> It's, it's summer, girl. <laughs> <laughs> We're out of lockdown. I've got places to be. <laughs> so, yeah, she starred in a little film called Cabaret, and it came out in 1972. It was directed by Bob Fosse, and it starred Liza Minnelli, Michael York, and Joel Grey. It's- was this her first foray with Fosse? Welcome to Foray with Fossey. <laughs> Our new podcast, Foray with Fossey. I think it might have been. I, I, I believe it was. I believe it was, yes. It Who, was the start she worked of, with quite a few times later in, yes, and it, later in her career. He's quite well known for pretty much starting a movement of dance. Yeah, will a Fossey neck do it? Yeah. <laughs> So yes, this was her first foray into Fosse, as it were. This also marked another collaboration between her longtime collaborators, Fred Ebb and John Kander as well, who we, we spoke about a little bit earlier. Mm. They're like a music and lyrics team, right? One, yes, yes. Yeah. Very, they create songs. Yeah, song, songwriter and, and lyricist. Yeah. Um, they did a lot of work with Bob Fosse as well. Like they were, it was this team. It was a lot of Liza. It was a lot of Fosse. It was a lot of Kander and Ebb. It was all this symbiosis of these people that worked together and worked together really well. So it was based on the 1966 Broadway musical Cabaret. Only a few numbers from the stage show were used for the film and Kander and Ebb actually wrote Liza a bunch of new songs to replace those that were thrown out. This was one of the first like integrated musicals, which is the, like the professional term for it. And it's where like each significant character in the production, full stop, expresses their feelings through song, basically. So it's like a snapshot of like what they're feeling at that time given to you in song format. And it was one of the first iterations of that in that sort of coming out of the golden age of musicals into the 60s and 70s and this new age of musicals that were coming out at the time. Interestingly enough, 
all of the songs in the film take place inside of the main set of the club, which is the Kit Kat Club, which is the underground Berlin cabaret club of the time of the 1930s and 40s that was sort of like, you're really like back alley, like underground, like really dark, gritty, dirty. Yeah, like real, like the underworld of Berlin. Yeah, like and that vaudeville type theatre, but like the sexy dark undertones of it. Like really great. There's one exception, however, in the film, and that's the song Tomorrow Belongs to Me, which is the only song that isn't sung by either Joel Grey, who plays the MC, or Sally Bowles. Sally Bowles, Liza Minnelli. A little fun fact. When Liza lost out on the stage role of Sally Bowles to the British triple threat of the time, Jill Hayworth, she wasn't upset and she was quoted as saying, I knew I'd get the movie for some reason. And she told this to the Huffington Post. She said, I remember saying to myself, that's all right, I'll do the film. Like, imagine having that much self-belief. And it's quite a bit later. The the film came quite a bit. Quite a bit later, didn't it? The yeah, so the show? stage production was 66, the film came out in 72. Yeah. So there was a little little bit of a gap between them. And she apparently was lined up for that spot too. Apparently they wrote a couple of the songs with her in mind and at the very end, I think it was Candor turned around and said that they wanted it to be a British, the yeah. character to be British. Yeah. She said, well, I'll do a British accent, but they, and they, they didn't, didn't end up go going with it. Yeah, and then, but then when she came back to do the film, she did it with an American accent. Yeah, then they changed and the they character changed back it. for yeah. the movie, yeah. Yeah, so they swapped the, the main roles. The main male, the love interest, was American in the show, and she was British in the show, and it was the other way around for when it went to cinema. She kind of forced these guys, Candor and Eb, to love her. Apparently, her auditioning for Flora the Red Menace that she got her first Tony for wasn't that straightforward either. They didn't want her. And she says that she overheard Eb as she's going to the stage going, well, this will be a waste of time. Oh. <laughs> they, I don't know what it was. I mean, he sort of speaks about it as though it was, I think he just sort of bundled her in as, as a stage daughter of Judy Garland. You know, she hadn't cut her own grass yet. Which she is very easy to do. Cut her own grass. Is not the right term, is it? I hadn't cut her teeth. She hadn't cut her teeth yet. I don't suppose she cuts her own grass, though. <laughs> she probably hasn't she's cut her She's had two own hip grass. replacements, so. Don't imagine she's cutting your grass in all her life. <laughs> not that kind of grass, anyway. <clears throat> um, <laughs> I, I think that's what it was. He says, yeah, I didn't want her. I didn't want her for her. And she reckons she auditioned seven times. This is Flora, the Red Menace, the, the original Tony show she was in. She just kind of keeps pushing herself on these guys. <laughs> Until and, they loved her. And more power to her because it worked. Eb says that when he writes music, it's Liza's voice he hears in his head. That's so cool. Imagine yeah. being such an icon. It just goes to show how much of a close working relationship they have. And she ends up getting all these people to surround her for Liza with a Z the following year. The same year that the film came out, yeah. Bob Fosse directed it and... Cameron Eb did the music. Wrote all the music yeah. when they famously wrote Liza with a Z for her. You're really terrific. And seeing how you are, can I tell you something? I have a problem. Now, it's not a big problem, but it is a problem. It's my name. You know, I find that still a lot of people call me Lisa. Wrong! (laughs) My name is Liza. Liza. Has a Z in it. Well, for instance, somebody will come up to me on the street and say, Hello, Lisa, how are you? Saying, fine, thank you, but it's Liza. Or somebody will say... Lisa, what a nice hat you have on. I'll say, thank you very much, but my name is Liza. And that's my hair. (laughs) So you can see what I mean. Anyway, I've been trying to figure out a final solution to this whole thing, and I think I've come up with the answer. Jack? Now listen, 
It lies with a Z, not Lisa with an S, cause Lisa with an S goes snuds. It's Z instead of S, lie instead of Lee. Simple as can be, see Liza. Of you may course. recognize that <laughs> from such podcasts as Divas or Divas. <laughs> and the very ending of this song is the Liza yeah. <laughs> that we do at the, at the very end of the opening title sequence of this very show that you're listening to, dear listeners. It's very quintessential Liza, I think, this song. It's written for her. It's just tongue in cheek and it's silly and, you know, what? Watching her perform in 1973 at this television special, she's just got so much spunk about her and it's cheeky and it's fun. I love it. She is a really enigmatic performer as well, much like her mother was. She just has this thing about her that is just so endearing and enamoring to watch. I don't know that there's anybody out there that I enjoy watching as much as I love watching Liza Minnelli. And Mm. in particular, this special. There are so many great moments from this Mm. 1972 concert film. So it was made for TV. Bob Fosse directed it in a way that we probably do see a lot now, but it was very groundbreaking at the time. He directed it and shot it like a movie. And they only had this one go at it. They yeah, they in were, a theatre. They reckon that they were rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing for ages because they get one take, you get one go, one take at everything. Yeah. And he, yeah, set up, you get all these different camera angles and stuff that you would see now with the technology that we have, you see that quite a bit for concerts and stuff. But yeah, it was really groundbreaking at the time. In the early 70s, of course it was. It was um, won an Emmy. That's exactly it. Liza herself has said that it was the first film concert on television. She they filmed it with a live audience... It's definitely like the first iteration of just a single performer performing. Like a one-woman show type yes, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could, do it, you could do it as a variety thing and have guests that came in and helped. But to do from go to woe as, you know, this as one performer and for it to do so well was, yeah, it really was set in a trend. And it's some of my favourite Liza performances come from this show as well. You've got Ring Them Bells, Liza with a Z. Bye Bye Blackbird. We're not playing the clip in this episode, but I will pop it up on the website because the Fosse choreography for this is everything. And she's in black. All the dancers are in black and they've all got white gloves. And it is so stylized. And Fosse Mm. had this like geometric style of choreographing. It was revolutionary at the time because there was nobody else doing what Mm. he did. He was pushing for a sort of, yeah, a style of dance that no one had really seen. And just to harp back to Cabaret for just a second, like some of the stuff that they had to do in that, and they said that they practised and practised and practised and practised and so many takes and so many takes because the choreography had to be perfect for for Fosse. It had to be spot on. And you see Liza do some – like there's a number that she performs on a chair. Mine hair. Yeah. And and she has her leg crossed over the other leg. It's over the top of the chair and she's sitting and clicking. and And then she kicks one of her legs up. And then puts yeah. it on the top of the back of the chair. Yeah. It's just, it's astounding. It's just, it, it really is astounding. And it's along with like the likes of Gwen Verdon, who was married to Bob Fosse, who was his original type muse, dancer muse. And like the Anne Rankings and those sorts of performers of that era that they all worked very, very closely with Bob Fosse. He had, a, he had a type and he had a type of gangly type of woman who had like long limbs, long arms and long legs and were able to pull off all of these mm. really elongated shapes mm. and... Oh, it's just so stunning. I think one of the things that you forget about Liza too, perhaps for us because of our age, but she was a phenomenal dancer. Obviously, she wasn't able to do that for quite a lot of like the last 20, 30 years because her body just essentially gave up on her. But her passion was dance, above singing, above acting, above all of it. She loved to dance. And, and she was she, an exquisite dancer as well. She pushed her body so hard that she had a... I'm not certain how old she was, but she had a double hip replacement pretty young. But yeah, that was her passion. So you can see how her and Fosse really made a great team. As we said earlier, it went on to win four Emmys and a Peabody Award. 
bored. But after the initial broadcast, NBC only reran the concert twice more, and then it didn't screen again after 1973. That was it. The film was not seen for over 30 years, and everyone thought it was missing. They couldn't find it in the archives. They couldn't oh, really? find it anywhere. And then Michael Arick, who was like a restoration historian, whose job it was to bring back like vintage footage and restore them to their glory. He discovered in 1999 that Liza owned the copyright to it and had the original copies of it. And then together they set about restoring the negatives right, so together. so it wasn't seen for ages. No, not until I think it was like 2000 was when it was re-released yeah. again. Like and that's so crazy for over 30 years that yeah. this incredible bit of footage just... Was missing. I wanted to tell you. I didn't want to tell you anything because there's nothing I can tell you on this episode that you won't already know. I wanted to talk about her stint in Chicago in 1975. Shut the front door. That's my next point. <laughs> Gosh, we have such a such a beautiful generic flow. <laughs> Genuine flow. <laughs> Generic flies makes it sound bad. Another iconic role of hers, Roxy Hart, in Chicago on Broadway. A role that she'd always wanted to play. She wasn't originally cast in it. Bob Fosse was doing the show. Is it Candor and Ebb? I think yeah. it's Candor and Ebb. Yeah, it's Candor and Ebb. It's Candor and Ebb. It's Bob Fosse. It was his wife, Gwen Verdon. His, his wife, Gwen Verdon, who was, you know, a big star in her own right. But it wasn't doing very well. It was probably set to close. Gwen got very sick, so she had to step away. So Liza said, I'd love to do it. If you have me, I'll do it. She tells this story about wanting to do it and how everyone sort of said to her, don't. Because it's not a great move for someone. I mean, this is just off the back of... Cabaret and Liza with a Z and she's big name. It was 75, yeah? yeah. So it was like within three years yeah, of yeah. Cabaret and Liza with a Z. Yeah. It's, it's a terrible idea. When these things happen in the theatre world, the understudy takes over. You don't get a big name to replace another big name. It just sort of diminishes you, blah, 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 blah. One of those people was Sammy Davis. And... He said, don't do it. Like, really negged on the whole thing. Yeah, he was like, you're a star in your own right. You don't need to be taking on somebody else's role. And she obviously didn't listen to him because... Why would Liza listen to anybody? So she said, no, stuff it. I'm going to go do it. I've always wanted to play this role. It's with the team that I love to work with. And off she goes, which is what you should bloody do anyway. Like, I mean, I don't know. I think there's something wonderful about getting to the pinnacle of your career and saying, I'm not going to do what the right thing to do next is for my career. I'm going to do the thing that I want to do. Now I can sit back and do something that I... She loved the stage. Like, that's where she wanted to go. Anyway, so she joins the cast. She had six days to learn the part. Like, this is where this showbiz Liza comes through for me. Like, imagine saying you've got six days to learn an entire musical, which at the time was a new musical. So this is when Chicago first came out. So there's no frame of reference, you know. There's no, like, I mean, you and I could probably do Chicago right now between the two of us, but she came fresh to this just six days. Learns this whole part in six days. As soon as her name gets attached to it, the rest of the five-week run that was currently planned sells out in one day yeah (laughs) one day the whole you can't get a ticket to this show anymore and it completely turned this musical around this musical that was set to end very soon that just wasn't going to make the cut and i mean she can really be credited for chicago i think being the amazing piece that it was today it could have been like a very limited run on broadway and never seen again which is not something that you i personally never attribute liza with with chicago like i know that it exists and i know that she was the reason it sort of really took off 
off. But for me, it's never been a Liza show. For me, it always was Cheetah Rivera and Gwen Verdon who played those roles. Yeah. But it just so happened that due to a luck in circumstances yeah. that when Gwen went out, that really, really took off and that really, I think, sold the rest of that run for it yeah. to be such a long-standing musical since then. And there's this really beautiful story where she says that after one show one night, she went into her dressing room and she opened her dressing room and she says she couldn't even walk. She couldn't even open the door because the room was full of flowers and it was from Sammy Davis with a card that said, well, when you're wrong, you're wrong and I was bloody wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I love that he can just admit that as well. Yeah. (laughs) Oops, I'm eating my words. There was a 1975 article in the New York Times about Liza Minnelli landing the role in Chicago and I'll quickly run through a few of the things that they say in this little like it's a little like press release type review op-ed piece that was in the New York Times and it was published on August 15th 1975 so one of the bits that I was fascinated by was it says the takeover has been as low-key as the producers can make it there is no mention of Miss Minnelli in the playbill merely a chaste billboard outside the theater a sotto voce announcement before the performance and a line at the box office that seems to stretch from there to eternity (laughs) interestingly the line is booking for Miss Verdon all the performances Miss Minnelli is scheduled to give have already sold out. So that's incredible. And then they end this article with this quote that I think encapsulates exactly what it is about Liza Minnelli that I love. And again, this was so early in her career, 1975. And this is something that I think has stood the test of time in terms of who she is as a performer and who she is as as a star, a legend, icon, everything that she is, a diva. And it said, as a performer, Miss Minnelli is larger than life and twice as beautiful. She has a monumental show business personality, but a certain gamine quality that suggests the soul and the heart of Piaf. Her voice has both strange stridency and vibrancy and she moves beautifully, but it is fundamentally her vulnerability that makes her so appealing. Behind all the brashness is not confidence, but an appealing and questioning uncertainty. It is an irresistible combination. Mm. And I was like, that for me encapsulates everything that when I think of Liza, it's everything yeah. all at once. Yeah. I love it. There's a really beautiful story that Fred Ebb tells about that transition period at Chicago when audiences that had bought their tickets to see Vernon had come in and, you know, at the start of the show, they would do that. Tonight, the part of Roxy will not be played by Vernon and you'd hear everyone go, oh, it'll be played by Liza Vanelli. And everyone go, oh, they probably just lose their minds. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to change tack here a little bit. We're going to move from her incredible onstage persona and her performances and the things that we know her best for. We're going to skip ahead to 2010, where Liza Minnelli made a bizarre, incredibly bizarre appearance on the Home Shopping Network in the US. (laughs) And she spent two hours selling her, it was her clothing and jewellery line at the time. And it was called the Liza Collection. Of course it was. And it was a Wednesday night. Like it was midweek, it was really late, and there's Liza live on the Home Shopping Network selling her wares. It is so crazy to me because she's so eccentric and she just says whatever comes into her mind, whether it makes sense or not, and she sort of just runs with it. She doesn't have like a steady stream of conscious thought. It's just a lot of babble. And it's so funny because the host is trying the hardest to try and like keep up with her and give her one-liners and punchy zingers, and Liza's just off with whatever she is doing. There's a really great bit where some people call in to the show and this one woman is like, you've always been my mentor. And Liza just shoots back, you're my mentor. <laughs> and it's, just, it's so bizarre. And she said things like, it's thrilling to talk to you and I'll remember it. And it's like, it's all these platitudes. It's all sort of like very, very like Hollywood, very showbiz. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like there's little remnants of things that you say in showbiz and she's plugged them all into the wrong places. But yeah. she's still got, I don't know, she's got, like, they're all just preloaded and ready to say. Yeah, just robotic <laughs> sentences, catchphrases and things for her just to throw out. Where, You're willy my willy. mentor. Beautiful. It's really stunning. She told the host presenter, Bobby Ray Carter, that she had been designing jewellery after a stint in hospital. She said, I broke my knee, so I had nothing to do in the hospital. I thought I would just start fooling around with stuff I love. And then I started working with clay. And this was in reference to one of the bracelets that the women were wearing that wasn't made out of clay. It's all very bizarre. And then she started giving like the models that were modeling her clothes, like tips on how to wear the garments, but would say things like, the woman should wear the dress, not the dress wear the woman. <laughs> and she told one of the women, she was like, this outfit sells you. Like, it's just, it's so funny. I want to play you a little bit of it now, just so you can hear just how crazy it is. Thank you so much for taking my call. It was a great thrill. Well, I, it was thrilling to talk to you and I'll remember it. Exactly. You don't have to sell it. It sells you. It's, <laughs> it's not wearing you. You're wearing it. Again, that the dress, the woman should wear the dress, not the dress wear the woman. Exactly. Instead of putting on everything that socks you in and everything, mm-hmm. again, you put this on and then you do what you want to do. Sit like you want to sit. Because all you have to do is really do, the, do this. That's These it. These clothes look great. That's right. And your arms are important. Yes. How about two or three or four? What? Bracelets. No one will do. And I thought, I hate this. So I started working with clay. I just started working with clay. I just started to work with clay. It's just insanity. And she's talked about her knee replacement about six or seven times throughout. The, the, it was a two-hour stint of her just sitting there talking absolute nonsense. Mm. Being so genuine as well. Like, <laughs> it doesn't seem like there's anything fake about it. It's just Liza living in her own little Liza world. One of the things I love about this clip is this clothing line. Because it's so quintessentially Liza. It's all this, like, super glittery fabric. Yep. All these, like, oh, gosh. It's Holston pantsuits. Yeah, That's yeah. all it is. <laughs> really, she's stolen somebody else's collection because Holston made all of those outfits just for her. Yeah, I mean, bless her. She's not been a well woman. Her genetics just weren't great in terms of surviving for a long time and having good health. She, you know, had a lot of issues physically with her body, and then she had uh, encephalitis, which attacks the brain essentially. That was in two thousand, and I think these clips show that the most. I think there maybe were just times where she just wasn't able to. Just be as on the ball as she might have liked she, to be. Yeah, once would have been. And also I think as well, she she did track a lot of the same path that her mother did. She did go down the drug abuse and alcohol abuse mm. route quite heavily as well, right up until her marriage to David Guest. She really emulated Judy in quite a lot of ways. And you just saying her marriage with David Guest, I mean, one of those ways is the way that they sort of had relationships with men. Never really picked no. great Men for Couldn't them. pick great men for themselves and were constantly rotating through so many different yeah. husbands. And ha- like just happened to end up in relationships with men that were either ended up being out homosexuals or rumoured to be homosexuals. Like what a strange thing that that happened for both of them. She certainly struggled in a lot of the same ways. She certainly cut from the same cloth, wasn't she? Yeah, definitely. She's Judy's daughter. Mm. There's a quote from Andy Warhol's diaries that was found. Liza at a point, Studio 54 days, 
can I just tell you, if there was any place in time in history that I could snap my fingers and go to, it's on that dance floor. No, it's in that VIP room with Liza Vanelli at <laughs> Studio 54. The disco, the height of the disco era, the height of this club, which was only open for 18 months, but this, you know, wonderful sort of party lifestyle. Liza was a big part of that. And one of the people she partied with was Andy Warhol and Andy Warhol's diaries were found after he died. And one of the things that he talked about a lot was Liza Minnelli, which is kind of a little bit unfair because it all sort of got released. But yeah, one of the things that he would talk about is her arriving to a party that he was having and just yelling, give me all the drugs in this place. (laughs) They just finding quaaludes and dope and Valium and everything. And she was just up for it all. It's a lifestyle, isn't it? a good time. (laughs) It's a lifestyle, isn't it? One of my favourite Liza moments is something that you actually shared with me. I didn't know about it until about a year ago, or when we first started delving into this world of divas that created this podcast. If it's what I'm thinking of that you're going to show me, I showed it to you the day we decided to start the podcast. The day that my husband came out and said, you two need to have a podcast. It's this beautiful clip of Liza on, well, the clip that you showed me was on Parkinson in 2006 when she performed a song that she performs called Quiet Love. Now, the beauty of this song is, well, I'm going to let her tell you the beauty of this song. Uh, This song is about a woman who is in love with a man and the man is deaf and dumb. And I think that's all I have to say because the story tells the story. Mm. Laurie. My lover makes no sound. His language is his hands. I watch his fingers dance and try to understand. I try to understand his elegant ballet. In my heart I can hear the words he longs to say. And so I've learned to speak a language he can hear to tell him how I feel whenever he is near. And and what transpires in this song as it goes on is eventually she starts picking up her hands and performing sign language along with the song, but in this really beautiful, vulnerable way of somebody that is trying to learn sign language. It's the sort of thing that you can't capture. Like, you can only create. Do you know what I mean? You can't plan it. You just It's this such this beautiful, vulnerable moment that only certain people would be able to convey. And, of course, we'll pop this clip up on the website so that you can see it because it is this beautiful thing to watch. And I, I was moved to tears the first time you showed me. I just think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. I would urge anyone to go on the website and watch this clip because it is her in a spotlight sitting playing dead into the camera Mm. dead down the lens and she is one she has to be one of the greatest storytellers that this world has ever seen her voice and particularly at this point her voice wasn't the shining bright voice that it was once upon a time but she but it's not about the voice it's about the way she tells these stories and the way she conveys the the kind of things that she's trying to tell it's truly one of the greatest pieces of performance art you'll see yeah it's, it's it's really really stunning and it's very very moving and 
And she's been noted as that quite a lot. And it, it's almost sometimes noted as, um, or certainly back in the day, it was noted as a very European way of performing, which was this dramatic way of singing. You don't just sing, a, you don't just get up and perform a song with your voice. You perform a song with your body and your actions. And, you, and Liza was always the embodiment of that. One of her idols and one of the people that she sort of defined her career on was a guy called Charles Aznavour, who's a Parisian singer. He's a, he is a French singer who she never understood what he was singing, but the way he sang, the way he performed was uh, was just stunning and beautiful. And I, I don't know if you've seen this tequila, but she there is a version of Quiet Love that she performs with him, and he sings in French. They're on opposite sides of the stage. Same again, just single spotlights on them. He performs in French, and she performs in English, and they sort of come together. Wow. It is... I'm, I'm going to show... never... No, I haven't. I'm going to show it to you now. Come aboard the ballet. I have a small surprise. Je manquais de moyens. To spring on you tonight. Me trouvant près de toi. I'm learning how to sign. Commentaire étrangère. Please God, I get it right. Ne pouvant me servir. It's something that you do. D'aucun vocabulaire. With, with confidence and ease. À mon tour, j'ai appris. I'm clumsier than you. Le langage. This might come out Chinese. There's such admiration for each other on stage, and in that piece, he's signing his bits to show someone that's signing to her, and her surprising him with the, the sign language that she's learnt, which is uh, yeah. And you have the duality in that as well that he's singing in French and she's singing in English. Mm. So not only have you got the the person who's unable to speak, yeah, and hear, but also like they can't understand like, each other for yeah, those reasons. It's so, it's, it's so many layers. During, oh my yeah, god, yeah. It's, it's, I love it. Yeah, so yeah, beautiful. very very good. She also performed it during her Radio City Hall tour. So beautiful. I wanted to touch on, and we're jumping around a lot here, but Liza's relationship with Judy. In particular, something that we haven't really mentioned, which is the way that Liza talks about Judy, which we've talked about personally quite a lot. There's actually this amazing clip on YouTube, which is, I haven't even seen the whole thing because it's really long. Someone has pulled together all the clips of Liza ever talking about Judy Garland. And the phenomenal thing is that for all the things that Judy's been through and all the things that Liza's been through, she has never had a bad word to say about Judy. And she she chooses to remember her mother in this light with love and the positive things that her mother had given her. And her mother, no doubt, loved all of those kids quite a lot. Liza always speaks about it with the highest reverence. She never says anything negative. What's really interesting here is that Judy Garland actually, there's a quote from Judy Garland that Liza has repeated that says, reality is something that you have to rise above. And I think it really encapsulates what happens here is it's like, yeah, there's a lot of crap that happens in your life, but you need to rise above that, focus on the positive and remember the good times and that, remember the love. That's really beautiful. That That's really nice because I feel like that's sort of the, the mantra that she sort of lives by when she does think about her mum and when she when she does talk about her. We did touch on it briefly, I believe, in the in the Judy in episode. In the Judy, yeah. And I believe the compilation on YouTube might actually be called Diva on Diva, Liza on Judy. I'm not saying. That's where we stole the name for this podcast from. <laughs> I, I'm not saying that, that that at all. But you know, in a court of law, maybe it wouldn't hold up. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of things wouldn't hold up in a court of law with you and I, my love, unfortunately. No, I wouldn't hold up. <laughs> Her own friend, Liz Smith, appeared on the 2005 biography special for Liza Minnelli, and she had this sort of insight to say, which I think is important to note. She has built her mother up to herself in quite a, as a quite a mythic character, which I think people, we all intend to do when our mothers go. We either make them into horrible villains or we turn them into saints. 
she's not unmindful of what Judy was. She just doesn't want to hear it from everybody all the time. It's good to point out, it's not that she doesn't understand how difficult life can be, it's that she doesn't want that to be the story that's told. She doesn't want that to be the story that lives on. Why would she want that negativity to be her mother's legacy when yeah. there's so much to celebrate? There's a lot of positives to take from that, I think, in terms of how people live their lives and how people... Sometimes it can be very easy to focus on the negative. What a way to rise above hardships and adversities. And she still says to this day in interviews, I've had a wonderful life. Like, I, I've been so lucky. I've been so blessed. Well, that's not the story that a lot of maybe media outlets or a lot of people want to tell about about Liza, but it is this ability to go, I'm not going to dwell on all that crap. You know, there's no need. I do want to just finish with one little thing that Liza said that I just think is is beautiful and it, it sort of is speaking to this way. She sort of emulated her mother in terms of loving men. She talks about love in this really beautiful way and about her own self-identity with love, which I think a lot of people would be able to identify with. I was fine if I was in love. That was my philosophy. You know, as long as I could see my reflection... In someone else's eyes, I thought I was real. Oh, what a line. That's heartbreaking because that's exactly, we know, and we saw it time and time again with Judy. That's exactly how Judy felt. Judy felt like her self, her entire self-worth was based off somebody else loving her yeah. and not her loving herself, which was ultimately her downfall. In yeah, the end. which can be a lot of people's downfall. It's such an eloquently put but sad common story that yeah. people, like, they don't understand their own self-worth unless they can see it from someone else. And even people like Judy and Liza would feel that way. Now that we've got down to the nitty-gritty of why Liza Minnelli is so iconic, why don't we dive into the lesser-known facts and figures? Thank you, Tamar, for the last time this season. Is there anything more recognisable? I know this is I know this segment's not called Is There Anything More Recognisable? But can you tell is me? Is there anything more recognizable? I'll take it out. <laughs> no, leave it in. You know they love it when we sing. <laughs> Would you mind if I sang? <laughs> Harking back to episode three with Lisa Mann, the Patty LaPone episode of Divas on Divas. Is there anything more recognisable than this? Apart from maybe the glockenspiel at the start of All I Want for Christmas is You. (laughs) Yeah. There is nothing that sends a thrill through my body as I am standing in the wings ready to go on stage more than those little piano notes at the start of New York, New York. Now, I have to tell you, I had a conversation with someone the other day. My friend Jamie. Jamie gets a shout out for helping me on the Patti Lapone episode when we had to find that clip that we surprised Lisa Mann with, the Did I Tell You She Never Called clip. I rang my friend Jamie, who is the biggest Patti Lapone stan in the world. She flipped through her, not the audiobook, through the actual physical copy book, went to the index, found the exact pages where she mentioned anything like that, anything to do with Glenn Close, and went through the entire book for me just to find that. So I promised I would chat her out on the episode. I never did. I, and Jamie's Thank been a wonderful you. supporter. Jamie's always had lovely things to say about the episode and wonderful, I've always appreciated it. Beautiful human being. But we were having this conversation at work the other day about this song. Of course, wh- whose version do you think is more famous? Frank Sinatra or... Frank Sinatra's. In the sphere of... Uh, the yeah. world? Yeah. In our okay. little world? Maybe Liza. Maybe Liza. I, I was thinking about this. Did you know the song is Liza's song? It's Liza's song. I... I found this out yesterday. I found this out last week and my really? mind... Blue. I wish you hadn't, and because it's one of my points, I wish I had been the one to tell you. That would have been a fucking moment, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it have been? Because we were sitting chatting at work, and I was like, no, the chicken or the egg? I'm like, which one came first? Like, was it Liza's or was it Frank? Liza was a full two years before Frank's on Archer Jitty is. 
Again, a song written by Candor and Ebb. And it was the theme from New York, New York, the film that she starred in, which was the Martin Scorsese film in 1977. And then the song did not become a popular hit until it was picked up in concert by Frank Sinatra during his performances at Radio City Music Hall in 1978, which was a full year later. And then another year after that, when he actually laid down the track and recorded his version. But you think... The closing of any venue the world over, it's the Frank Sinatra version that plays, and it's the most well-recognized version. I, I had no idea that it was an originally a Candor and Ebb and yeah. Eliza song. I actually wrote in my notes earlier when we were writing up iconic songs that Eliza sings, I wrote her version of New York, New York, because I wanted to go, well, obviously I know it's not it's not her song, but she just does a really great version of it. But it is her song. It's her song. <laughs> it, it was written by Kendra and Ebb for her, for the movie New York, New York. Can I tell you the cutest bit of trivia on the back of that? Yeah. Up until 2001, the Yankees used to play, you know about this? I, saw it, this? I saw it today. <laughs> the Yankees would play Frank Sinatra's version of New York, New York anytime they won and would play Liza's version of New York, New York anytime they lost. lost. So up until 2001, because in 2001, Liza said, absolutely not anymore. Either you play myself when you win or you don't play it at all. And they ditched it and they only ever play the Frank Sinatra version now. What a shady thing to do, to be like, we're just going to play when we lose. It did did make me giggle. I was talking to you before about this concert series that she did at Radio City Music Hall. I'm not going to tell you this ridiculous fact about Liza Minnelli. Liza Minnelli is going to tell you this ridiculous fact about Liza Minnelli. She had sold out a three-week stint at Carnegie. Carnegie Hall, so they sort of thought, all right, fair enough, three weeks, Radio City Music Hall. Now, Radio City Music Hall is big. (laughs) It's quite a large theatre. It's the biggest theatre in America. It's over 6,000 seats. Yeah, it's the home of the Rockettes. So in terms of the sort of theatres and stuff that we've sat in, it's six times the size. You see it on TV every year. It's where where they've been hosting the Tony Awards for like the last five years. Oh, okay, yeah, Yeah, right. Like from Radio City Music Hall. So it's, it, you know, the scope of it, it's huge. Yeah. yeah. For a limited context, Carnegie Hall, which was a big deal that she sold out for three weeks in a row, is about 3,500 seats. So it's, you know, almost double the size. She found this really overwhelming, and this is how she chose to deal with how it was overwhelming. It was completely empty, and I was all by myself. And I walked out onto that stage and stood there, and I almost threw up. It's so big. It seemed bigger than any place I had ever played, bigger than Carnegie Hall, bigger than anything, standing on that stage. And I was frightened. Well, I went there for two weeks straight. I had to lie on the floor at every place, you know, just lie there and accept, it sounds so weird, but just accept that theater and that I was safe. She literally just went to the theatre every day for two weeks and, and just, just lay, down. lay down in every place she could find and just take it in so that she would feel comfortable, I guess, with the space. Because it is one of those things, and I, I looked up some pictures, and it doesn't really do it justice, but it is one of those things when you think about... I can find sometimes... The Grand Canyon is a good example. It's, it's the sort of thing where you look and you're just overwhelmed by the amount of space that's in front of you. Yeah, monumental and, amount of space. I like, totally yeah. understand how that would really yeah. rattle someone. Yeah. And especially seeing it empty as well, because things look much bigger when they're empty rather than when they're full of people, because it's bustling and it's like there's movement. I want to go. I want to go there. I'd love to see it. I mean, there's probably a lot of really crappy seats in that theatre, but I would really love to see it. We did touch on earlier how in 2000, she suffered from a very serious case of viral encephalitis. That's um, an infection of the brain, (laughs) swelling of the brain due to infection, isn't it? Yeah, like inflammation (laughs) due to infection of the brain. That's exactly what it is, Robert. And don't you sit there and pretend like we didn't just fucking... Google what it was. I wanted to steal it from you because you've just spent the last five minutes Googling encephalitis. <laughs> and I wanted to take your point. Anyway, continue. You're very smart. <laughs> 
Thank you for finally acknowledging that. So the doctors told Liza that she would spend the rest of her life in a wheelchair and most likely never be able to speak again. You can imagine this must be heartbreaking for someone whose life is performing to find out that you're going to spend your entire, the rest of your life in a wheelchair and then probably never be able to speak again. I have seen Liza in concert. I saw her back in 2011. She talks about this in the show quite heavily. And she said that she defied all odds and every recommendations that the doctors had because she did what she knows how to do. She started training again. Mm. So she started vocal lessons again. She started doing daily dance lessons again to get things moving and like getting muscle memory back and like physically getting her body moving again. Yeah, she wasn't going to give up. She no, was she be. was determined. And she she says, she was like, they told me that this that the diagnosis basically meant this was the end of my life as I knew it. And she was like, and I wasn't taking that lying down. Yeah, she's like, I don't know. If, I, if I'm not this person, I'm not anybody. Like, no. This is who I am. No, this is who I am. And so she did what she knew how to do. She was, at, she was a hoofer from way back, <laughs> from the Broadway days. And she went, I'm getting back onto that stage. I'm going to start dancing. I'm going to start singing. And it was small things. It was small vocal exercise. And it was small little steps and little routines and things like that to finally said, build it back up. There was one little thing that she said. She said she was in the hospital and there was like these leaves on the wallpaper, right, or something to that effect. And she would just look at them and try and count them out loud when she couldn't speak. So all she could do was, uh, uh, uh. But she said, I just did it. To and try I kept, and get a speech pattern back. You, yeah. just, you just kept going and kept going and kept going until you started to form words. And it sounds like quite the process. Like it, you have to have her kind of brain to well, really it's a testament it. to how incredible her brain is and the resilience. Mm. Because life really, really kicked her around a hell mm. of a lot, from, yeah. as we found out today, from woe to go. And and she what she got back to was astounding. Well, this was her, her first performance back after the encephalitis diagnosis and all of the rehab and all of the retraining and things like that. This episode of the Rosie O'Donnell show aired on September 19, 2001. And despite having vocal surgery shortly before this, Liza came out to her friend Rosie O'Donnell's show and sang New York, New York for an audience that went up. Mm. Step around the heart of it, New York, New York. I want to This, for me, is the Liza that I know and love today. This is the Liza that I quite often, in a lot of the shows that I do when I when I do my Liza impersonations, it's a lot of the stuff that she did post-2008 from, like, Liza Live at the Palace and all of those sorts of recordings, where her voice is a little... Raspy. It's, it's a little raspy. Yeah. But her vibrato is still yeah. intact. Her, her vocal quality... There are 
professional singers out there working today that can't sing at that quality. And that's a year after being diagnosed with... It just took on a different quality, like a richer tone. And, and But this for me is, this was her sort of her comeback. And of course, just after this, she, she did tell reporters, I'm as stable as a table. And then by 2002, which was only two years after being diagnosed and told she'd never walk or sing again, she was 56 years old at the time. 56. That's not that old. Mm. She was 56 years old at the time and she went off to Europe to tour her new show, Liza's Back. Oh my God. Like this woman, she means so much to me. Yeah. She's just a fighter. She doesn't want to give up and she's... And she gets some... For that tour of Liza's Back, I've seen a vision of her rehearsing for that and she gets down... She gets quite slim again. She ends up being this really slim, active... Fit, very fit woman for her age. And yeah, back on the road and touring. I, I'm fascinated to know if you know this, Tequila. A lot of my research in Mary Did You Know was can I find things that Tequila didn't know about? <laughs> and I really hope that you don't know about this because I just found this absolutely fascinating. Did you know that in the early 1980s, Liza auditioned for the role of Evita? No, no, I didn't. <laughs> Obviously, this movie. I feel didn't. like that should have come up in the Patty Lapone episode. I'm very <laughs> glad that it didn't, that I get to find it out now. Well, the role of Evita in the movie Evita. Yeah. So the movie that didn't end up getting made until 1996. But the reason it didn't get made is fucking fascinating. It's so good. In the early 1980s, director Ken Russell was attached to create the motion picture of Evita for the first time, and Liza auditioned for him. Now, Ken Russell loved. Liza's audition. He loved it so much that he refused to make the movie unless Liza was attached. So, producer Robert Stigwald sacked Ken Russell <laughs> because he, he literally gave them an ultimatum and said, I'm not making the movie unless it's Liza that he's going to play the role of Evita. He got sacked for it and that's the reason that the movie got shelved for another 10 years and didn't get made until Madonna was attached in 1996. <laughs> so this is a wonderful, another one of these wonderful sliding door moments yeah, where yeah. that movie was supposed to be made 10 years earlier with Liza Minnelli, but the producer was like, you're not giving me an ultimatum and just sacked this guy, didn't want Liza in the role and what could have been? Can you see Liza no. as a veto? It's no. It's odd, isn't it? <laughs> I don't want to even want to take that into I mean, my sort of anyone else but Madonna, something. but not yeah, Liza, but not Liza, but also <laughs> not Madonna, not Liza, but for also two very separate, different reasons because Madonna is a and um a hateful Liza, woman. It's, Liza's my favorite. Yeah, no, no, I can't see that at all. That no. it's, it, it is. I would like. I would be interested to see what it looked like. No, it's a no from me. I just wanted to touch on briefly. Um, a please don't touch me. <laughs> Don't have to tell me to ask. I just wanted to touch on briefly a stage show that she created, which I love mainly because of its name and its synergy with this podcast, Manelli on Manelli. Not Divas on Divas, but Manelli on Manelli. But as I sort of looked further into this thing, it's beautiful and it was on Broadway and I think there's a live recording that was released as an album as well. It was when she had her vocal surgery in 1997, so she had quite a bit of time in recovery where she couldn't sing. She was watching all of Vincent Minnelli's movies, all of her father's movies, and falling in love with him all over again. They've always had a really beautiful, very close relationship. She ends up putting together this show and and comes back with this show. It was primarily songs from her father's films, and she said that she wanted to do it because she knew that Judy's name would always stay alive, that Judy Garland would always permeate throughout the future. She just wanted people to remember Vincent Minnelli, who was, you know, he had his own Oscars. He was, But because he was a director, yeah. you know, directors sort of come and go and you, you don't pay as much attention to them. They're not the, the stars of Hollywood. Yeah, they're sort of pushed by the wayside in terms of yeah. the hierarchy of where people sit in celebrityism. Yeah. yeah. So she just didn't want him to ever get forgotten. That's how much he meant to her. She wanted to bring him back to the forefront and create something that would remind people of 
the excellence that he was. It sits somewhere really warm in my heart. Yeah. It just sounds like a really beautiful, genuine relationship. And we yeah. know that Liza is to speak fondly of people, but there's something very real about the relationship that they had. She says that he was sitting next to her when she won the Oscar for Cabaret and that he just screamed into her ear because... And, and it's not just her. Lots of other people have always said that he was her number one supporter. He was always there supporting her and... Uh, just wanted the best for her, which is it's a, it's sorry you don't hear as often. We hear so much about the relationship between her and her mother, but to learn more about the relationship she has with her father, I think that's what she wants people to know. And I'm glad that I've learnt more about it. Yeah, Mary, did you know that much to the disappointment of the musical theatre and like sketch comedy crossover contingent of like fans, Liza has never, never once hosted Saturday Night Live. Never once. <laughs> I think I've, I can think of one notable Liza Saturday well, Night Live Well, this moment. is the thing. <laughs> because she made a memorable cameo as the best friend of Kristen Wiig's character Penelope back in 2009. But between 1987 and 2017, a total of eight women debuted their best Liza Minnelli impressions <laughs> on the 30 Rock stage. So you had Nora Dunn, Rosie O'Donnell, Molly Shannon, Maya Rudolph, Lena Dunham, Cecily Strong... And then our favourite. Of course. The one and only <laughs> Kristen Wig. I still say the funniest clip on the entire internet. And every watch, it just gets funnier. We're going to put it on the website. It's one of the things that you and I, Robert, have bonded over so hard and so often because... I watch it at least once I'm, every couple of months. I'm at least once a week. It pops up. <laughs> it's on my. It's constantly on my YouTube recommendation list. It sits in like a box in the top right-hand corner. I love it. And it's it, Liza Minnelli tries to turn off a lamp mm. and it's Kristen Wiig doing this very funny impression of Eliza Minnelli trying to turn off a lamp essentially in an apartment with Jonah Hill is there playing some guy and they're miscellaneous to, partner yeah they're <laughs> off to the um, premiere of Cats and she's just like to show business to turn off a lamp <laughs> it's the best I watched it today <laughs> and I better turn off the skinny lady is that a foot chopper once You and I quote quite regularly to each other. Will a fasty neck do it? It's just, it's so camp and it's so silly. And she's doing all of these like Fosse-esque moves and camping around the, the room to try and turn off this lamp. And it's, it is really just sketch comedy at its finest. And yeah. someone doing, it's not even a particularly good Liza Minnelli <laughs> impersonation. She doesn't have the voice. She she has the wig and the, the sparkly outfit and whatnot, but it's more of just the embodiment of just yeah. all of that, of that just, silliness. Just silliness. Almost like the sort of conundrum that you could see Liza getting herself into <laughs> and being a bit of an idiot about, like, it's, yeah. It's, look, her really camping up. And it's great because she sort of breaks a little bit through it too. Like, just the ridiculousness of it gets to both of them, I think, in the scene. and One of the greatest videos on the entirety of the internet. Nothing else left for us to do then, Tequila, other than talk about why it is, and this will be an easy one, why it is that we as a queer community and you and I as gay men love Liza Minnelli quite so much. And I was like, why are you so obsessed with me? Liza Minnelli is Judy Garland's daughter. End of segment. That's all you need to know. Gay rights. How is she ever not going to be an absolute gay icon? If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to the Judy Garland episode because the connection between Judy and the gay scene was crazy. It was out of control. Like I don't think we've ever seen another diva that is as connected and as on the pulse of, of 
the gay scene, especially at that time when it wasn't an easy thing to be. And then, of course, Liza. How could she ever not have been accepted and loved by the gay scene? Yeah, 100%. She has very strong links to the queer community and, and helping out where she can with certain things as well because she was the one, reportedly, she says this in an interview, that she was the one who told Elizabeth Taylor about the HIV and AIDS epidemic when she was talking about their mutual friend Rock Hudson. So she was the one that sort of brought that to the forefront for Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor obviously went on to create AMFAR, which is the foundation for AIDS research. There's a diva. Yeah, right? I've got a lot to say Mm. on Elizabeth Taylor as well. Nobody's shocked. (laughs) That Lindsay Lohan movie, nobody needed to do that. And in 2007, she stated in an interview with Palm Springs Life, which I'm sure is a very reputable magazine. (laughs) Um... (laughs) You know, they, get, they wheel the old divas out to these sort of Reader's Digest type magazines all the time. I'm a big subscriber to Palm Springs Live. <laughs> I see that for you. My favourite favorite publication. She said, Amphire is important to me because I've lost so many friends that I knew to AIDS, obviously. She lost her first husband, Peter Allen. Yeah. And her best friend and designer of most of her costumes for most of her career at Holston. In 1994, she recorded the... Another Candor and Ebb song the day after that and donated the proceeds to AIDS research. And in the same year, she performed the song in front of thousands in Central Park at the 25th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. Glad also awarded her the Vanguard Award in 2005, which is the same award that, again, another diva from the list, Patti LaPone, just keeps coming back. In 2008, she was interviewed for The Guardian by Lynn Barber, who says in her article that she was always, even in her 20s, a gay icon, just like her mother. When I asked her why she thought she was, she said it was because the gays have good taste. (laughs) This is just a quintessential. Yes! (laughs) Sorry for screaming into the microphone. I think, for me, Liza, we've touched on this already, but she is show business. This is what I love about it. She is show business. She is this quintessential showgirl. She's great for a soundbite. She embodies what it is to perform and entertain and give a persona to the world. What and it I is think- to be show business. She grew up in show business. Yeah. Like she is showbiz. She was trained very well by yeah. her mother. Yeah, very, very, very well. Judy really taught her how to be show business and she really took that mantle and she ran with it. Here's a great example of Judy passing on her wisdom to Liza. The public still says, I love your mother. And I say, so do I. But I was talking about my mother, not Judy Garland. One time I said, Mama, nobody knows how funny you are and how you're so wacky and funny and, and wonderful. And why don't, why don't you show that more? Why don't you tell people that you're not this tragic figure and this, this you know. And she said, because they like me the other way. And that's my job. See, the best advice I can give you is give the people what they want and then go get a hamburger. <laughs> I don't know whether to laugh or cry, honestly. We're sitting here with tears in our eyes. It's this really beautiful understanding of what it is that you've taken on as your role in the world and what, what it is that you wanted to be for the world. The dichotomy between the Judy Garland, and again, we spoke at length on the episode about it, but the Judy Garland that she was to the public mm. and that the people saw her as and the person that she really was, that's why Liza remembers her the other way. Because, because that's she was her mother. It's so much of who she was that he's kind of either wasn't seen or has been forgotten. 
it's not just that, it's, and it's part of it, but also she knows how to remain positive. So there's this person who we know have been through hardships that knows that we know has had a difficult time, but has raised above it all and has always remained very, very positive and raises above reality. Like we were saying before, Judy's quote, you know, you've got to rise above the reality of your life. There's something to hook into there, right? That positivity, that excitement, that happiness, that spreading cheer, spreading goodwill, you know, you can see how the scene might relate to that, right? Right. Yeah, definitely. I would love Liza to write a book with these little inspirational quotes that her mum passed down to her. Or anyone, because it's out there, you know. Yeah. She talks about her mother at length. People always want to ask her about Judy. All of this stuff is out. Maybe you and I should write a book. <laughs> That's it. You've heard it here. Divas on Divas. Manelli on Manelli, the book coming soon. Coming soon to hardcover. Had <laughs> a divics near you. <laughs> Billboard Online featured a love letter to the LGBTQ community from Liza Minnelli. And she said, where would I be without the LGBTQ community of dazzling souls who have always supported and understood me on a level that is unique and extraordinary? From my earliest memories, I understood that some people were different, especially when I met so many of the creative people who were working on films made by my mother and father. In the golden age of Hollywood, many could not be themselves in the workplace and live their true nature, yet it was their creativity that fashioned the dreams of Hollywood and the world. They were my friends and I learned that different meant many things freedom oppression celebration sadness responsibility hiding protesting sharing but most of all being true to oneself no matter the Mm. price today I celebrate all the special people past and present who made it possible for me to be here and to be courageously different their examples have shaped me and without them my life would be empty happy and joyous pride I think that's really I love that Mm. like I didn't get this emotional when I read it before sorry (laughs) Um, the heart of which she speaks about our community and how in her world it was something even in that golden age of Hollywood it was something that just wasn't acknowledged and wasn't allowed to be acknowledged it was sort of very swept under the rug and kept in the closet but to see that she knew she could tell the creativity Mm. of these people working on these films and working in these industries that were allowed to shine through their work and that's how they felt their pride Mm. it shows a profound knowledge of not just who these people are but what these people have had to go through I think that's what really touches me about it it's not somebody giving lip service on something it's somebody who does get it who does understand it Again, similar to Judy, she's sort of been surrounded by gay men or those that have been rumoured to have homosexual affairs and that sort of stuff. Her father is rumoured to be bisexual. Peter Allen is more than rumoured. You know, Peter Allen did come out of the closet while they were married and she supported him through that and they end up having a beautiful friendship. There's also rumours that David Guest was bisexual at the very least. There's these connections with gay men that are even closer than just the people you Much work with. Much closer to home than, yeah. than, yeah. Funny you should mention Peter Allen. Liza told the advocate editor-in-chief Judy Weeder in September 1990. I married Peter and he didn't tell me he was gay. Everybody knew but me. And I found out, well, let me put it this way. I'll never surprise anybody coming home as long as I live. So as the story goes, she came That's home. That's how she found out. And he was in flagrante with a man. It was reported, quite heavily reported, that even Judy herself was well aware that Peter Allen yeah. was gay but wanted this so badly for her daughter. Yeah. I do want to acknowledge here, just for the sake of continuity, that I did say in the Judy episode that Peter Allen was openly gay at the time that he married Liza. That's not entirely true, but that is what I had heard. Is that It was a very well-known secret. That, yeah, that Judy Garland kind of knew about it and I didn't realise that it was still a little bit behind closed doors because that's not the way Liza talks about it at yeah. all. Liza says that she was certainly quite shocked and it was a very typical thing to get broke her heart. <laughs> but you know what? If I'm going to come out of the closet while I'm with someone, I'm glad it was Liza. Liza. You know, like I think she understood what a struggle that was for him and was able to just slip into being supportive and making that transition easier for him. 
Harking back to something that you were talking about earlier, a longtime friend and often collaborator with Liza was Charles Aznavour, who was a French singer who was born in the late 1920s. And he made it a point to do these sort of story songs, like the kind of storyteller songs that we were, were talking Liza doing with Quiet Love, and she did the duet with him on that. Now, he had a song called What Makes a Man a Man. It tells the story of a lonely gay man who works in bars as a female impersonator. And it was revolutionary at the time in the 1970s when talking about homosexuality was taboo. And especially in popular music in France as well, was he was doing things as a straight man. He was writing these songs and breaking down these barriers for communities that were marginalised or not heard of as, as much. He later said in an interview, it's a kind of sickness I have, talking about things you're not supposed to talk about. I started with homosexuality and I just wanted to break every single taboo from there. Gosh. Which is for a man that was born in the 1920s. 1920, I think it was 1924 he was born in. He died Wonderful. at the age of 94? In 2018. 18, yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, Liza adored this song. The original song was in French but it was translated into English and she recalls I called Aznavour and I said I'd like to sing What Makes a Man a Man and he said and then in the interview she lapses into incomprehensible gurgling noises where he's going oh no 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 ah, ah, no, ah, no 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 she was like lots of those words lots of noises that come from somebody who's thinking I've never ever thought of a woman doing it I never thought that it could be sung that way and then when he saw her do it he said you were right you were right and it has become a staple that she does now in all of her concerts. I was lucky enough in 2011 to see her do it. Mm. And she does it again in a spotlight in the middle of the stage. I'd like to play a little bit for you now because the lyrics within this song, and again, all of this is on our website, divasondivas.com. The lyrics ring true in this for me. Again, a song that was written in the 70s to have such an impact in today's society. So many times we have to pay for having fun and being gay. It's not amusing. There's always those to spoil our games By finding faults and calling names Always accusing They draw attention to themselves At the expense of someone else It's so confusing Yet they make fun Of how I walk And imitate the way I talk Tell me if you can What makes A man A man Just this really poignant lyrics in this song. It's, it's quite like that. It's quite a patter song throughout. I would urge everyone to go and listen to it because it speaks volumes to how our community has been treated mm. for years and years and years. That's another one that you played for me that day. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. Was, it was Quiet Love and That, my two favourite Liza performance numbers. Yeah, it shows this side of her that is another thing that our community connects with is that she has the ability to convey emotion. She is a person who is emotional and feeling and isn't perfect, but yet is so strong, is someone that is viewed as being such an incredible strong person. And there's such a similarity there between what a lot of us would love to be, which is, you know, it's okay to feel, it's okay to struggle, it's okay to be hard, as long as you're strong and you get through it. And I think she really embodies that. Funny you should mention Liza embodying things. We would, of course, be remiss... To not talk about this. We would certainly be remiss not to say it would be remiss not to for the last time for the in season last, one. Very last time. <laughs> of Divas on Divas. <laughs> to talk about, of course, the incredible cameo that she made in Sex in the City 2. Sex in the City 2 was a critically panned movie. 
<laughs> across the board. I went to one of the UK premieres of it and it was... You filmed in the UK? I, I might have mentioned it once or twice. And we got to sit in this fabulous box in this, in this booth and all this food and it was wonderful. And I knew nothing about the film. I had no idea that Liza was about to make a cameo. The gay gasp that came out of me <sighs> when she walked out... I bet. And I think this really sums it up. Why would Liza say yes to this? It's a law of physics. Anytime there's this much gay energy in one room... Liza manifests. (laughs) And there she is looking resplendent in her sequin, in her signature black sequin jumpsuit and officiates this wedding for the two gay characters in the movie. It's the most extravagant. It's the most ridiculous. It's the most Liza thing you could possibly imagine, which was only then overtaken by the fact that at the end of this whole segment, she marries the boys and it's all great and they're all dancing. And then she comes out to do a number and she came out to do this. In the club, we just broke up doing my own little thing. Side it's dip, dip, now they wanna trip comes another gun, notice me. Up on him, he's up on me, don't pay him any attention. Cried my tears, three good years, can't be mad at me. Cause if you like it, then you should put a ring on it. If you like it, then you should put a ring on it. Don't be mad when you see that he wants it. If you like it, then you should put a ring on it. And Liza again showing us how much she loves to dance. She's got the single ladies dance down pat. <laughs> down pat with two backing dancers that are wearing the exact same outfit and wig that she's wearing. <laughs> Never in my wildest dreams could I imagine that I live in a world where I would see Liza Minnelli doing a Beyonce cover. But here we are. Sometimes dreams do come true. If you haven't seen this movie, I would I would genuinely tell you not to watch it because it's awful. But go and find this clip on our website, divasondivas.com, because it'll be there waiting for you. Ding! That brings us, Tequila, to the final diva moment for season one of Divas on Divas. One qualifying moment, which, if nothing else, proves to you that our diva is a diva. In the truest sense of the word diva, then this will... A bit of a different spin on it this episode, haven't we, Tequila? A little bit. This isn't a diva moment that I'm aware of. It's not something that I could find on the internet. Look, I think... Are you able general to fill rule, me in? As a general rule, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a real diva diva moment I said this of to Liza you. Minnelli. I said this to you yesterday. I don't yeah. think we can find a diva moment for Liza Minnelli. And you said, girl, hold my drink. My interaction with Liza Minnelli. Um, Your personal interaction, personal interaction with Liza interaction Minnelli. With Liza Minnelli. I mentioned before, I did get to see her perform in the UK when I lived there. She was performing in Manchester. Me and a few of the girls that I went to uni with, plus uh, another drag queen who I worked with called Sushi Buffet. We all travelled down to Manchester. Now, we had booked into a hotel room that overlooked the loading dock of the, the place where she was performing. So our room looked down onto there. So we were waiting for her to pull in so we could race down and try and get a moment with Liza Minnelli. We saw them pull up, the cavalcade pulled up, we ran down, we saw her being ushered into the thing, and I was like, Liza, Liza, screaming. And her manager came over, and we... Punched me square in the nose. (laughs) I said, hi, is there a way that Liza will sign? I I bought a program from the show, the the doors were open earlier, I'd been and bought a program from the show. He was like, no, she won't sign programs or photos from the tour, she will only sign merchandise like memorabilia, which they weren't selling. So I was like... Can you give us 45 minutes? (laughs) I ran into the centre of Manchester from where we were. No buses, no trams, no taxis, no nothing. We ran, all four of us, into the centre of Manchester. We went to HMV. I bought every single thing of Liza Minnelli that they had. They had a double CD. They had a poster that was in a roll. They had a cabaret DVD. I bought everything Liza. And I took it. And we went and I handed handed him the bag when we got back to the stage door. 
And I said, okay, would she like us to leave our names or anything? He went, no, no, no. All she's going to have time to do is sign Love Liza. And that's it. Which is great. That's plenty. That's like, more that's than enough. That's all I want. That's, I could die happy if that happens. The show happens. I get to see her sing all of these songs I've known and loved my entire life. I cried from start to finish. Like I have never, ever cried before. It was truly a perfect night until it wasn't. Afterwards, they said, come meet us back here afterwards and we'll have it all ready for you and it'll be in your bags. And everyone started getting their stuff back. Everyone except for us. And then there was just us. And our stuff never came out. So and other so, people do this as well. Other people bring things yeah, for them to for, sign. Yeah, for them to sign. Yep. Ah, and they take it away. Yeah, and, and come back after never heard and of get this it. Before. And then nothing. Our stuff just didn't come. So we stood there and we waited and we waited until they came back out, until we saw that manager person again. And he was like, oh, yeah, I've got to go and get it for you. And he came out and there was nothing on it. And I was like, oh, sorry, I think there might have been a mistake. She hasn't signed anything. And he went, oh, no, you didn't leave your name so she wouldn't sign it. Ah! <laughs> and then... The diva moment of all diva moments happened because she was walked out of the building. They pulled the car right up to the door and I went, you fucking bitch. (laughs) I'm not saying it's my proudest moment, but it is certainly the biggest diva moment I've ever had. Where I screamed, you fucking bitch, at the back of Liza Minnelli's head as she was being ushered into her blacked out SUV. That's awful. Awful. I'm not proud. I didn't say I was a nice person, Robbie. I'm saying I'm human and I make mistakes. I'm sorry. And Liza (laughs) Minnelli, if you're listening to this, that ginger gay boy that was screaming obscenities at you outside of the stage door is incredibly sorry. This is the real reason that you've devoted a portion of your drag career towards performing Liza because you're trying to make penance for what you've done to one of our iconic divas. Yeah, I'm I'm not proud of it. I don't know that I even want that on record. I feel like we're not going to have it. (laughs) Nobody will come back for season two. But look at how the reverence of which I've talked about her tonight. What a way to finish season one. You call in Liza Minnelli a bitch. Yeah, yeah. My own very personal diva moment. (laughs) You can't find one for Liza. I'd like you to leave. I'll finish the show. (laughs) Off your pop. Certainly that is just about all the time we have. Can you give us like two or three redeeming stories of your character so that that's not how we leave people? No, that's awful. For an entire however long it is that we have to take a little bit of a break for now. You've you've come to know me and hopefully love me over the over the past Oh no, that girl that's not gonna help. Over the past (laughs) twenty weeks. And I I I just would like you to know that I'm not that person that I was. No, the UK was no good for you. <laughs> I'm good. We have just about come to the end of not only the episode, but season one of Divas on Divas. A massive thank you to all of you for all of your support throughout this season. We've said it before, but it really has blown our little minds how well the season has gone and how well it's been received. I could never have imagined when we took on this endeavour that I would be happy if just my mum would listen. No, no, no. We were, gonna, we were willing to continue on. We talked about what we were willing to do and we were willing to continue on for a lot less listeners than we do have. So we thank Thank you all. That doesn't mean stop listening. No, no, no. Please do keep listening. We've got so much more coming for you in season two. Season two of Divas on Divas. Watch the socials. We'll be sure to let you know well ahead of time when that's going to be happening. You can follow us on our socials, of course, at Divas on Divas on Instagram and Divas on Divas podcast on Facebook. All of our bonus content that we have played for you during this episode will be uploaded to our website, which is divasondivas.com. That's divasondivas.com. <laughs> of course, we do have time for one last Diva Vault. We're going to take you out for the season with this. What have we got for people this episode, Tequila? This is a very visual one, Robert. This is a very visual clip. So we're going to play you out with this song, but 
I genuinely, and not just because we want people to go to our website, but you need to see this clip to believe it. This is Liza Minnelli performing on The Muppet Show on TV in what looks like the 70s. I couldn't get a date range on it whatsoever. She's very young and she's very thin, very beautiful, playing Lola. And it's her version of the Barry Manilow classic, Copacabana. Go and check it out. And until next season, everybody, don't forget, life is a cabaret, old chum. When there was Lola, she was a showgirl with yellow feathers in her hair and a dress cut down to bear. She would merengue and do the cha-cha. And while she tried to be a star, Tony always tended bar across the crowded floor. They worked from eight to four. They were young and they had each other. Who could ask for Oh, I wanted to play you this. Just you, not for the podcast. I just think it's a good warning call for you. Because if this isn't you, I swear to God. Everybody has martini and a half, right? Some feel sleepy. Some are a little silly. They get giddy. I feel great. <laughs> I have found the answer. That's the way it affects my brain. And to kill a bucket, man, if that I ain't you. Great. <laughs> That's actually the face you pull when you've had a couple of drinks. <laughs>